Well, thank you for being here this morning. It, uh, it's good for us to be together. I know this past week I was able to be gone. We got a great staff here taking care of everything, and it allowed me to be gone with my family up on a vacation uh, up in northern Idaho at a dude ranch, and uh, had a, uh, I just had a great time. Jeff did a wonderful job last week uh, preaching a message, and the staff took care of everybody, but it is good to be back. Uh, I'm going to see if we can get a bit, bit more lights on in here. If we can do that, please, I'd appreciate it. Um, I, I want to give you just a little uh, a little snippet of, of uh, our family vacation, not because it was just awesome, uh, but because of uh, some significance, just as an encouragement to you. Uh, like I said, we were up in northern Idaho, up by Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. It was just gorgeous at a dude ranch, and one of the things that we got to do was ride horses. Down in the valley is the ranch, and this is taken on my horse up on the ridge of this mountain. It was about an hour and a half ride up to this point. Uh, and um, I was struck on this ride by 2 Timothy 2.4. Uh, or sorry, 2 Timothy 4.2 that says, proclaim the word in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. I had an hour and a half ride right behind our guy. An hour and a half of his ear as God led us into conversations about faith, about Jesus, about the heart of the Father, when I got to proclaim to him the gospel for an hour and a half on horseback. It started with a conversation about he and his son and about how frustrating it is for parents to give instruction to their kids and the kids not listen. Which for me was an open door to talk about how God has done the same. Lots of instruction. Even wrote a book about it. Uh, and how his kids oftentimes don't respond. Don't obey. He shared with me his frustration and, and, and the angst of a father just wanting to. And I got to share with him the Heavenly Father's mercy and grace and patience. And it led from that through behavior to relationship to salvation. An hour and a half ride with this guy up on the hill. And I was struck again about how we talk about our huddle. Those people in our lives that God places in our lives. Oftentimes, so that we, as Christ followers, take the opportunity to share with others about Christ. And I was struck for a moment that sometimes those huddles are, are people that are in our lives all the time. Other times, God brings people into that sphere for a time. And it was a time with him up on that mountain. I, it, was, it was so fun to watch. It's the Bible says God is constantly pulling people, drawing people to himself. Two weeks ago, I talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit's role is to testify about the Son, but the Holy Spirit only does that through the lips of disciples. Yeah. And this was my chance to do that with our guide. It was fantastic. Hour and a half. Two days later, we went fly fishing on the St. Joe River. Me and my son Caleb on one boat and my other two sons, Wyatt and Joe, in another boat. And as we're fishing this river, fly fishing this river, 
again with our guide, the conversation turned to faith. I asked about his faith, and he shared with me that he's a Christmas Easter type of guy, but was raised with good morals. And so we got to talk about the difference between relationship or rules and relationship, uh, and morals and a relationship with Jesus. And it, with my son Caleb and, and talking to this guide to share the message of Christ, the role of, of, of the cross, and the mercy and grace of a father who has a reckless love for his creation. And it was just an awesome opportunity to end season and out of season on vacation to realize that God is drawing people to himself and oftentimes puts people in our huddle because the Holy Spirit will give testimony to Christ through our lips. And it's just an encouragement for you. Be ready. In season and out of season. Be cognizant of the opportunities that are around you. Do the work of an evangelist, Paul told Timothy. And it was really, really neat that right as my son Caleb hooked up this huge trout that I looked up in the sky and there was a bald eagle circling overhead. And I just thought, oh, this is America. It was awesome. I don't know what that has to do with Jesus, but it was just awesome. Um, but I just want to encourage you. With whatever the scenario is that you find yourself, if you're a follower of Jesus, God is, wants to use you and employ you to draw people to himself. Take advantage of opportunities that might not seem like opportunities on the front end. Push into those. Do you understand? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that we have a chance to be a part of your work. Thank you that you are constantly drawing people to yourself. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you give testimony to Jesus through our lips. I pray that you help us be mindful and creative to speak even those things we don't know, knowing that as we speak, words would be given us, that we'd fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, that we'd declare it fearlessly as we should. Thank you for the chance we have to open up your word. Holy Spirit, we give you permission to speak to us. We say on the front end that we'll listen. And we say on the front end that we'll respond. So speak now, your servants are listening. In your name I pray, amen. I want to encourage you that every morning when you wake up, you get out your Bible and make sure that this verse is still in it. Make sure it didn't go anywhere during the night because you're going to need it every day. And we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Make sure Romans 8, 28 is in it. It's a verse we need. It's a verse we need to believe. It's a verse we need to, to hold on to. This, this verse, Romans 8, 28, is the difference between a life lived in peace and serenity and a life lived under stress and panic. This verse. Those who live with the belief and trust in this, in, in, in the sovereignty of God, our lives lived in the absence of panic. Our, our stress and panic 
are the natural outcomes of the life who are not convinced of the sovereignty of God. Please understand that. If we really believe Romans 8.20 and we trusted the sovereignty of God, the ability and, and the promise to work all things together for good, if we really believe that, stress would be a foreign feeling, worry would be worlds away, and panic would pass. Oftentimes the reason we get so stressed and worked up and, 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 and scared is because we really don't trust God's orchestration of all things and that that orchestration is for good. If you've ever known someone who is what one would call a control freak, do you know someone like that? I mean, it's probably not you, right? But probably someone you know. One of the reasons we, that people struggle with, with control freaks is, is because at the heart of it, they don't really trust the orchestration of God. Because if they trusted the orchestration of God, they wouldn't have to control. Does that make sense? Because after all, if I control it, I know it's going to be good. And, and so, and so the, the, the more the struggle is there to, to get my hands on, to control it, to manipulate it, to, to make sure the less there is in the trust of the sovereignty of God and his promise to work things together. If God's working things together for good, why do you have to control? You follow me? Charles Spurgeon, probably other than Paul, the greatest human preacher this world has seen, he says, probably there's no other teaching, truth, or doctrine that's more comforting to the child of God than that of his, of his sovereignty. There's no other truth or doctrine that's more comforting to the child of God than the truth of the sovereignty of God. Especially considering the, the, concerning the, the events leading up to the crucifixion. The sovereignty of God and the trust in the sovereignty of God is especially tested when you look at the events leading up to the crucifixion. It, th those events leading up to the crucifixion, we would look at those from our perspective if they happened to us and feel as though we were a victim of the circumstances. Everything just conspired against us. But Jesus was not a victim of those circumstances. He was the orchestrator of those circumstances. Jesus himself was the director of them. And he understood the sovereignty of the Father who had such a reckless love for his creation that would send his son, his only begotten son, to die so that we wouldn't have to. See, here's what I know. Trust in the sovereignty, but here's what it does. It gives stability and hope during the uncertainties and, and disappointments of life. When we trust in the sovereignty of God, it gives us stability and hope during the uncertainties and disappointments of life. See, and this is what I see in John 18. We're going to be in John 18 today. If you have a Bible or your smart device or something, please, please turn there. And this is what I see. See, in John 18, Jesus had enough more than enough reason to crumble under the uncertainty and the disappointments that were pouring out on him. 
He had more than enough reason. Had this been any of us, we would have crumbled. We would have been destroyed by the disappointments, by the uncertainties, by the betrayal, by the denial, by the injustice that was being poured out. And each one of those for Jesus was a test of his trust in his father's sovereignty. Will father really work this out for my good and the good of those who love me? Will he really? Each one of them, each one of these these tsunami tidal waves of betrayal, of denial, of injustice, each one of them was either a work of the devil to destroy Jesus' trust in his father's sovereignty or it was a work of God to employ Jesus in the trust of his father's sovereignty. And each one, Jesus met each one with the opportunity of embodying the trust of the sovereignty of his father and with each one his resolve grew greater and greater and greater. And this is the way it works. Every time you and I face these, 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 these moments, these unseen, unforeseen to us moments of disappointment, of, of, of chaos, of stress, of, of betrayal, of, of difficulty, every one of those is an opportunity for us to embrace the truth of Romans 8, 28. I know, though I don't understand it, I know that God's going to work this out for my good because I love him. And this is according to his purpose. And every one of those moments is a chance for us to to grab hold of that truth and and the comfort of the sovereignty of God and to cause our resolve to go greater and greater and greater. See, the person who trusts in the sovereignty of God is a person without turmoil during the difficulties of life. Do you understand that? Do you understand my words? Now, while that might not be your experience, you can understand my words, right? Right? And so in John 18, let's see how we can make that our experience. So the question I have for us right at the beginning this morning is this. What does it take for you to lose hope? What does it take for you to become depressed? What does it take for you to make you want to quit and give up and walk away? What does it take for you to become bitter? What is it that has to happen for you to become angry? Let's look at John 18. And Jesus' response to all those things that would have made any one of us lose hope, become depressed, to give up and walk away, to get angry and bitter. See, according to the divine time clock of God, Jesus knew that it was time for him to get the show on the road. I mean, for 30 plus years, my time hadn't come, my time hadn't come, my time hadn't come. Well, now his time's come. And he knew that now was the time to, let's get this thing rolling now. And he tells his his disciples, those who are left with them, 11 of them, let's get up and go, boys. I got some appointments to keep. And Jesus walks his men from the upper city of Jerusalem down the descent of the Temple Mount towards what's called the Kidron Valley, which faces the Mount of Olives. And he takes them on this walk. 
over the Kidron Brook into the Garden of Gethsemane. Why? Because he's got a rendezvous to keep. In John 18, 1, the Bible says, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. One of the first things that struck me in verse 1 of John 18 is that the Bible says when he had finished praying, he acted. This is a really important principle for me to practice that I don't very often. To pray first and to act second. I'm one of those guys that, that's, if you're like me, ready, shoot, aim, fire. Anybody else like that? Like, I just go, let's just get it done. Like, we'll figure out the problems and work it out as we go, but let's just start doing something. I tell my boys all the time, God can't even steer a parked car, so just start some movement. I wonder how many things would have gone differently in my life had I stopped and prayed and then acted. Or, how many things have gone different in your life had you stopped and prayed and then posted? <laughs> or have you stopped and prayed and then... I mean, it's just a principle. It's after he had prayed. He prayed for himself, he prayed for his disciples, he prayed for all of us who would believe on his disciples' witness. Then they moved. And he went across the Kidron Valley. This is important. See, Jesus is behind the scenes, and Jesus has already agreed to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And this is G- Judas's way of trying to manipulate the situation to force Jesus' hand to act in rebellion to the Roman government and set up his kingdom. Judas is trying to force his hand in this. But all this has been prophesied. All this has been arranged. And here's what I know about Jesus and this, and and what we've got to understand, that Jesus wasn't a victim, he was a volunteer. Jesus wasn't a victim of all these circumstances we're going to read about. He was a volunteer. The Bible says he led his disciples into, across the, the Kidron Valley, into the garden. He volunteered for this because he knew that God was going to work all of this together for good, for him and for us. If you knew that you could choose a path that would walk you into the goodness of God, or you could choose a path of your own creation, which path would you choose? Wow, I'm going to suggest you should choose the path of God's goodness. And when that is it, like if when you decide on the front end, God, I'm going to trust your sovereignty. And I'm going to trust your word. And I'm going to trust that you're going to work even the difficulties out together for my good. Then you go into everything. The joys and the pains. The successes and the defeats the pleasures and the difficulties, the goodness and the betrayals. You go into all of it as a volunteer, not as a victim. And this is why so many people struggle 
through the difficulties, through the betrayals, through the hardship, through the pain. Because we go through it as victims. Shouldn't be this way. That was wrong. I was at what... And we approach them all as victims. And at the end of the day, the reason why we, we approach all of those experiences as victims is because we don't really trust and understand the orchestration of the sovereignty of God, that he's working it together for our good. So I can go into even those difficult things, not as a victim, but as a volunteer, because I know even that door is going to be for my good. Do you understand? You follow me? And so many times we want to fight against all of those and say, no, but this is right. This is what I deserve. This is. Jesus had the understanding that this was the work of God he was volunteering for. He was never a victim in this. Matter of fact, he will say, no one takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to pick it up. I'm a volunteer for this because I know God's going to work this together for good. There was no panic. There was no chaos. He had done that work in private with his father earlier in the garden. As Jesus was walking down through the Kidron Valley, Across the Kidron book, uh, uh, Brook, up to the, the Mount of Olives, I'm sure in his mind he was thinking back to the Old Testament account in 2 Samuel 15 of King David. See, King David was, was, was an exa- a model of, of the Christ who would come. King David, the, the, the ruler of the people, the ruler of the, of the Jewish nation. King David. Though king, experienced in 2 Samuel 15, his son Absalom's revolt against him. And then because of that revolt, he experienced the betrayal and denial of a trusted friend and confidant, Ahithophel. And because of that betrayal of a trusted friend, the nation turned against their king. Now think about it. The king betrayed by one of his closest, and the nation turns against him. Jesus, the king, betrayed by one of his closest, and his people turning against him. I have to believe that as Jesus walked in this path, the same path that King David walked generations earlier, down the Kidron Valley, across the Kidron Book, up to the the, the, the Mount Olives. I, I have to believe that Jesus in his mind, he knew that this was, the, the, that the forerunner had done this. And he knew the story of David. He knew that God would still yet again intervene, that God was setting things up in David's life for his good. And Jesus knew that because God is always faithful, that God was going to do the exact same. And I just wonder if later down the road, after the resurrection and ascension, if the disciples are sitting around having walked this road with Jesus, having known Old Testament uh, history, I just wonder if the disciples that were sitting around one evening around a campfire, you know when you have those aha moments? And probably their little daily Bible reading app popped up and they read that portion of 2 Samuel 15. And they're like, oh, 
Yes! David did. We, we did with Jesus. Like God is so good as orchestration and stuff. It just makes sense. This is beautiful. And start to see the orchestration of God all through Scripture telling the story of Jesus. It seems to me that oftentimes to walk with Jesus means also to suffer. This was the Apostle Paul's prayer. His prayer is that he would become like Christ and share in his suffering. See, I think we've forgotten something. I think we, let's not forget this important part. That suffering is part of the maturation process of the disciple. And sometimes we walk with Jesus into moments of suffering. Because that's part of how Jesus, of how the Father matures disciples. Is to suffer. But it's important how we suffer. Not in panic. Not in chaos. But to suffer with the understanding and the trust that God will work this together for my good and I will trust his sovereignty in the midst of walking into the garden. You understand what I'm saying? You tracking with me? And all this leads me in John 18. How do you suffer without becoming sour? John 18, 2 and 4, watch this. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? When, when the Bible says that Judas was leading a detachment of soldiers, that word detachment, when it's attached to a military force, means a tenth of a legion. There were 6,000 soldiers in a legion, so a tenth of that is how many? Thank you. So when the Bible says that Jesus was leading a detachment of soldiers, you could assume that it was maybe 600 soldiers that were employed to go hunt Jesus down. Now, it's not likely that it was the full 600, but it could have been. Can you imagine? Jesus voluntarily walks into the garden knowing that there's going to be 600 soldiers armed with weapons and torches against you and 11 of your guys. At every moment of the events leading up to the crucifixion was the, the, was the test of Jesus' trust of the Father's sovereignty. Why else would you voluntarily lead your men into an unwinnable situation if you didn't trust the sovereignty of God, that God was going to work this together for good? Do you understand? See, here's what I know. Trusting God's sovereignty eradicates panic. Trusting God's sovereignty eradicates panic. Jesus wasn't being forced to go into the garden. 
he was a volunteer that led his men to there because he trusted the sovereignty of God and it eradicated panic from his life. The fact that they came with swords and torches means two things. It means one, they figured there was going to be a fight. And two, torches, because it was nighttime, they figured Jesus was going to hide. And Jesus never, neither fought nor hid. He says, I am here for this moment and I trust my Father. In verses 4 through 6. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and did what? They drew back and fell to the ground. Here's what's happening. When Jesus says, I am he, what he's saying is that Old Testament phrase that God used of his own personal name, I am. So when they ask, who do you want? They say, Jesus, now he doesn't respond, hey, it's me, Jesus. He responds with the personal name of God, I am. And at that proclamation, at that declaration, they boom, fall over down. Because the, the power of the name of God has so much authority that it overrides every event every outcome of evil. And with that one phrase, I am, Jesus asserts complete and total authority over every force of evil that would come against him. And in essence, what Jesus is saying is that I have so much disdain for your plan and your weapons. All I have to do is speak my identity and you are nothing. Jesus could have that moment said, how you like me now? He could have said, I'm done. He just proved. And yet, he trusted the sovereignty of his father that even in what was about to come, he knew all things were right. God was going to work it together for good. Do you understand? Look at what happened. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and stuck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Just commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father's given me? You know, at least Simon was committed. I mean, he's risking a death sentence right here. Now he told Jesus earlier, I'll die for you. And now he's proven that he will. Now he's going to drop the ball. He's going to fumble the ball in, in, in a few hours. But right now, to, to draw a weapon against a Roman soldier and then actually to strike, that's a death sentence. And so, you know, Peter was a lot of things, but, but of all Peter was, he was certainly courageous. I mean, he's the one that jumped out the boat. He's the one that took... Now, Though he was courageous and a man of action, he, he was a fisherman. He wasn't a swordsman. And so he was pretty bad with a sword. <laughs> and he was probably swinging for the guy's head. <laughs> and he just got an ear. But the thing I love about this is that what we learn in here, and, and John doesn't tell us, 
we, we learn it later. Uh, we learn it in Luke 22. That Jesus then picked up the ear and, and put it back on the guy and healed him. Here, here's what I love about that. Think spiritually. The Bible is called the sword of the spirit. There's our sword. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Think, think spiritually about what's going on in the, in the garden here. An exuberant yet ignorant disciple uses the sword to wound one who was close to Jesus. And Jesus, in the last miracle of his earthly life before the resurrection, repaired the damage that was done by an ignorant sword wielder so that that person could hear. Here's what I know. Some of you have been injured by the sword, by exuberant yet ignorant disciples who have used the word of God to unlove people God loves. And the work of the Spirit is to heal that which has been damaged by an ignorant use of the word of, of the sword so that you can hear him again. Do you understand? And for some of you, you have been so damaged by exuberant yet ignorant disciples wielding the sword erroneously. And you've been cut up and diced up and hacked up. And if that's you, I just want you to be around Jesus long enough for him to pick those pieces that have been damaged and heal and heal and heal so you can hear him again. It's a beautiful picture. As you go on through John 18, verses 12 through 30, I'm not going to read them all. But Jesus goes through six trials. The first three are Jewish religious trials. The second three are Roman civil trials. And all six of them are illegal. But Jesus has so much trust in the sovereignty of God. He knows what Paul will write later that we read in Romans 8, 28. God's going to work all this together for good. And he walks into, as a volunteer, all of this injustice, all of these illegal trials, all of this illegal maneuvering to damn him without pushing back, without defense, simply because he has so much peaceful, serene trust in the sovereignty of God. The Bible tells us in verse 12, then the detachment of soldiers with its com commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him, verse 13, and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Annas was the former high priest, the father-in-law of the current high priest, Caiaphas. Annas was such a, a, a man of the people. The people loved him. Annas will do so much authority. They didn't even take Jesus to the high priest first. They took him to Annas, the former high priest. All Jesus would have had to do was win over Annas, and the whole thing would have been done. The people would have followed anything he said. Jesus offers no defense before Annas. All he would have did have to, had to just smooth Annas a little bit, and it would have been over. And the, the, second, 
The second questioning that he went through was before Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, verse 19, the high priest questioned Jesus about his, his, uh, his disciples and his teaching. Verse 20, Jesus says, I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I've always taught in the synagogues or the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they'll tell you what I said. He's not being obstinate and he's not being difficult. He just said, why are you questioning me? Ask the people who heard me. See, what Jesus knew that we don't understand is that it was illegal for them to question an arrest subject personally. It was like the Fifth Amendment. I don't have to respond to anything that might incriminate me. So, you, so, so the law was that you can't question the person who's been arrested directly. You have to ask their representative. And so all Jesus is saying is, look, this is fine, you want to play it this way, but you know and I know that this is all illegal. You're doing it all wrong. Your law says you don't ask me what I've said, you ask them what I've said. But you're not even playing by your own rules. Do you see what's happening? This whole thing was bogus. This whole thing was... Jesus had every right to put his foot down and to say no. I demand my rights. I demand. A trial couldn't happen at night. This is when this happened. There had to be 24 hours to give a person time to defense. This happened immediately. At any point, Jesus could have said, this is out of control. This stuff's spinning out of control. Someone has to stop this and at least bring some. And Jesus, in all of this, said, you know what? That's fine. If this is how God's going to orchestrate it, I'm going to trust his sovereignty. And even with all this injustice, God's going to work it out for good. I mean, how many of us would have responded this way? Sure as heck not me. <laughs> By God, I'm American. I got some right. You know, like, like every one of us would have said, no, this cannot be God's plan. This cannot be God's way. This is all wrong. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm not a victim here. I'm volunteering this because I know my God. In Matthew 26, 59, it says that the Sanhedrin then got together all the Jewish leaders. That was the third religious trial of the Jews. And then back in verse 28 of John 18, then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. And verse 29, so Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? And Jesus went through three civil Roman trials, one before Pilate, and then Pilate sends him over, in Luke 23, uh, Pilate sends him over to Herod, and then Herod sends him back to Pilate. So he went through three bogus civil trials by the Romans. And at any point, Jesus could have said, this is ridiculous. I'm putting an end to this. But there was an incredible trust of God's sovereignty to know that God was even going to work this injustice together for good. In, in, in verse 30, Jesus says, he says, you know, he says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If, if it were of this world, my boys would fight. If, 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 if the important thing was this world, I'd put it into this right now. 
But my kingdom is not of this world. I'm meant for a better world. And if this is how God's going to orchestrate this world, I'm fine with it. I'll trust his sovereignty. He'll work it together for good. You know, it's interesting that uh, Pilate's response to Jesus, he he says, Jesus says, I've I've, I've come so you can know the truth. And Pilate's response, I think, in verse 30 is, what is truth? You know, this postmodern mindset has been around since the time of Jesus. What is truth? You have your truth, I have my truth. You can believe your truth, I'll believe my truth, it's no big deal. I mean, that's what our culture tells us right now, right? Your truth is different than my truth, that's fine. You can believe your truth, I'll believe my truth. Let's just get along and be happy and just love. You can't have love without truth. There is truth. And we've got to understand and not be duped by a culture that says there is no objective binding truth anymore. I mean, we've got to understand that two opposing truths cannot be true at the same time. If I say my fishbowl in my hand is full of water and a, uh, and a goldfish in it, and I also say my fishbowl in my hand is completely empty, both of those can't be true. Do you understand? The truth is a boy cannot be a girl and a boy. There's just truth. People struggle with that. And Pilate says, what is truth? And Jesus says, you're looking at him. But let me, let me wrap this up with this. Here, here's, here, here's, here's the thing I love about this whole chapter 18. With all this stuff, Jesus is trusting the sovereignty of God and knows God's going to work this together for good. Look at how beautifully this comes together at the end of this. Verse 39 and 40. Pilate is addressing all these Jews, hundreds of them, maybe thousands of Jews, out before him. He's standing there, Jesus by himself. In verse 39, it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, not him. Give us Barabbas. And and John tells us now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. To get the full scope of what's going on, you got to go to the book of Matthew. Uh, And in Matthew chapter 27, it tells us the totality of this. And now I want you to get this. Jesus has gone through all of this, submitting to the sovereignty of God, knowing that God's going to orchestrate it and work it together for good, right? And so we get this little snippet. Pilate, standing before all the Jews, Jesus next to him. Ask the people, it's, it's your custom that I release one, prison, one of your prisoners during the Passover, just to show I'm a good guy. And so I don't find any reason why this guy should be killed, so how about I let him go to show my graciousness? They respond, no, no, no. Set free Barabbas. Now, when the Bible says he was guilty of an uprising, really it was treason, and it was a rebellion and insurrection. He was guilty of murder. So he was getting the death penalty, Barabbas was. They say, Barabbas, Barabbas. And so Pilate says, well, what do you want me to do with this guy? And they, the Bible says they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. 
Okay. So, so look at look at Matthew. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival. The same exact scenario, just from Matthew's perspective. It was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. Jesus was a pretty common name. Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who's called the Messiah? But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd, all of them, a whole bunch of them, to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, the governor? He asked them, which do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who's called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Peter. They don't answer him. They just shout back even louder. Crucify him. They released Barabbas to them, but Jesus said, flog handed over to be crucified. Here's how it goes down. Pilate and Jesus are standing here. Off to the side are the cells of the prisoners. They don't really know everything that's going on, but they can hear, they can hear from a distance. So Pilate stands there and he asks, he doesn't shout, he asks. Who do you want me to release to you? They shout, Barabbas, Barabbas. And so Pilate says, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And they shout, crucify him, crucify him. What? He hadn't done anything wrong. How about I release him to you? No, Barabbas, Barabbas. What about this innocent man? Crucify him, crucify him, Barabbas, crucify him, Barabbas, crucify him, Barabbas. Crucify him. Barabbas is in the jail cell hearing the shouts. He knows he gets the death penalty. He knows that this is a time for the governor to release a prisoner. He knows that who they call for will be released. And what he hears is Barabbas, crucify him. Barabbas, crucify him. And I could just imagine in that moment the soldiers walking down the corridor to Barabbas' cell, and he hears the clinging, uh, clanging of the swords and the shields, and he hears the footsteps getting closer, and he knows his fate is sealed. And like a rabid dog, he's ready to fight. I'm going to go down swinging at least. And as they open the door, he's ready to throw down, and they say, Barabbas, you found life. Because Jesus is crucified in your stead. Do you see what I'm saying? He realizes that his sentence is death. And then he experiences the liberation of the crucifixion of Christ. It's the gospel. And it is beautiful for the ears who have heard the sentence of death over them to realize that the innocent Jesus is crucified in my stead. Do you understand? And suddenly, for Barabbas, and suddenly Jesus fleshes out, all of this has been orchestrated for the good of those who love. So Jesus could absolutely trust without panic the sovereignty of God. See, here's what I know. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. 
that while we were still sinners, with the sentence of death hanging over our head in the jail cell, Christ was crucified. Because of the Father's reckless love for us. And that kind of reckless love makes me trust His sovereignty. If He's willing to go through that extent for me, I know that in all other things He'll work together for my good. It was fleshed out in Jesus' life. And it's our example as followers of Him. And so today, for some of you, today is your day to realize that you sit in a jail cell with the sentence of death hanging over your head for your sin. And I pray today is your day when you hear the door swing open wide and say there's been one who was crucified in your place. It's Jesus. I want you to pray with me. Father, I thank you for your reckless love that has pursued us through the life of your Son. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would convict us who who have not crossed the line of faith yet, that you would convict us of the reality of the death sentence that hangs over our lives, of the jail cell of sin that we sit in, because we've not come to you in faith. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would convict those who are not convinced of that yet, of that fact, of that truth. Not to their shame and disgrace, Father, but for their repentance. Jesus, thank you that you took my place on the cross and gave yourself for me so I could give myself to you and forgiveness, receiving eternal life. Friends, if you've never done that, I want to encourage you in this moment. In simplicity and serenity, just to say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I admit it. I have the sentence of death hanging over me. And I want you to remove it. Jesus, thank you that you died on the cross in my place. I accept your life for mine. Forgive me of my sin. I accept you as my leader. Help me learn to follow you in serenity and in peace without the chaos of this life. I give myself to you right now. With your eyes closed, if any of you have done that, I just want you to slip your hand up real quick. I'm going to pray over you real quick today. Just slip your hand up real quick. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Good. Good, good, good. Who else? You know God's calling you. Good. Thank you. I appreciate that. 
God is so good. He's pursuing you. He just asks you to respond. Father, I thank you for these. Thank you, good. I thank you for these. Thank you. I thank you for these who have, who have trusted you again. Some for the first time. Some for whom it's becoming real again. I thank you for, for your love for them. I thank you for their response to you. I ask in the name of Jesus that you would walk before them. That you would protect them from the, the schemes of the evil one for their destruction. That you would uh, 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 remind them and assure them of your sovereignty over their life. Of the orchestration of your plan in their life and through their life. I pray, Father, that they would walk in the assurance of salvation. Not in the chaos of control. And Father, I ask through them that you would constantly remind them of your continual presence. And Holy Spirit, that you would fill them. We love you, Jesus, and I thank you for what you're doing. Help us trust you. Help us rely on you. You are a good God. And you are ours. In your name, name I pray, amen. Those of you who indicated that, I would encourage you. <clears throat> I've got that little booklet that I wrote called Foundations that just helps with some of the foundational principles of faith. I don't know how many copies we have left. If there's any, if not, we'll print more this week. You can buy the office and get those or pick them up next Sunday. It'll just help ground you in some of the foundations of faith. And I would encourage you to stay in your Bible and stay walking with Jesus. Reliance upon him as you go through this world. He's got you. I'm excited for your future. I love being together. I love opening up the word. It's so so good for us. It's, It's what we should be doing. I went long again, Jeff, like I did last service. I appreciate your patience. I appreciate your patience. God's a good God. How about we stand up and sing a little bit?